Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. Great show on tap for you. As always, episode 146 on the docket, and we got another crew chief in the world of NASCAR here to tell you about his life, his career, and his trajectory to get to where he is today and the future. It is Ryan Sparks, crew chief of the seven car for Corey LaJoy at Spire Motorsports. He is making waves in the Cup Series, but it was a long road to hoe to get to this point for Mr. Sparks. He takes us through every single stop along the way. Plus, we're going to chat a little bit about Dover and preview throwback weekend at Darlington Raceway per usual. But before we do any of that, we got to pay homage to the number 46 this week. In my book, this would have been cold trickle. I think that it's too good of an opportunity to pass up. But this is my show and it's dad's segment. So I will throw it to Papa Siegel for this week's Wayback segment with no cold trickle, but still putting a bow on a theme for the last month or so. Take it away, Papa. Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 146. Today, we finish our extended tribute to the Petty family. First, as a matter of full disclosure, there's really no meaningful connection between number 46 and the Petties. If we hadn't devoted the last four weeks to them, we'd likely be talking about one of the great early names of NASCAR, Speedy Thompson. Speedy, I just love saying that, scored eight of number 46's 11 overall wins. He racked up 20 cup wins overall between 1950 and 1971 and died during a late model race at the famous Metrolina Speedway in Charlotte when he had a fatal heart attack during the race. All due respect to Speedy, but we're going to hijack his stage to pay respect to two other members of the Petty family you may not have heard of. Did you know that King Richard had a brother? Maurice Petty actually started 26 cup-level races on his own before realizing that maybe his talents lied elsewhere. He was one of the first great NASCAR engine builders and played a huge part in Richard's career and success. When you think about great NASCAR engine makers, Modern names like Robert and Doug Yates and Waddell Wilson certainly come to mind, but when you think back to the sport's roots, you have to include Smokey Eunuch, who we previously discussed, and Maurice Petty. King Richard wouldn't have won 200 races without superior power plants under his hood. Maurice Petty provided them. In 2014, he was the first engine builder to be enshrined in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Another name you may have heard of associated with the Petty 43 is Dale Inman. Inman is Richard's and was Maurice Petty's cousin, and he was Richard's crew chief for his seven cup championships. He also won another championship with Terry Labonte in 1984. 
I think a strong argument can be made that Inman may be the greatest crew chief ever in NASCAR. And yes, I include names like Everett Ham and Leonard Wood when I say that. He basically created the job of a modern crew chief, including delineation of duties, detailed prep, and driver pit crew communication. Inman won 193 races as a NASCAR crew chief, 188 of those coming with his cousin Richard. Dale Inman was inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2012, and he's still spry in getting it done today. That's all for today, and for our elongated tribute to the Petties, certainly one of the great NASCAR families. Back to you, Duke. Thank you, Dad. A well-deserved month or so tribute to the Petties, whether it be Maurice, Richard, Lee, Adam, Kyle. Who knows? We may even see some more Petties coming down the pipeline. I know that Kyle has two young kids, and they, of course, will be exposed to racing down the road. Who knows if they'll choose to go that path, but I got no doubt that they will be interested in it and dip their toe in it in some form or fashion. All right, let's start off this episode as we always do with a good old-fashioned And let's throw it straight over to our interview with Ryan Sparks, crew chief of the 7 Spire Motorsports Chevrolet in the NASCAR Cup Series. Man, he is a busy guy, and I'm so glad he carved out over an hour with me to take me through his entire career, the here, the now, the then, the future. Everything was on the table with Ryan. We talked about getting a job at RCR straight out of college, staying in that role for about 13 years, and then leaving and even getting a vote of confidence from Richard Childress himself to go and pursue that crew chief role. Did that with Go Fast Racing, which led him to Spire Motorsports, where he is now. We chatted about building that organization brick by brick. What does that look like? Are there tangible things that they can accomplish? Is it more so metaphorical? Ryan will explain that to you. And we had a lot of fun in this chat, especially towards the end. So stick around for the good stuff, including why he gets his hair cut so often and a couple one-liners that may be the best in the history of Victory Lane. You guys are going to like this chat, I know it, and I will get out of the way to let you hear it. Here's the conversation with the one, the only, Mr. I don't get fresh, I stay fresh, Ryan Sparks. Pleasure to welcome on to the show this week, another crew chief mind in the hearts of many. It is Ryan Sparks, crew chief for the number seven Spire Motorsports Chevrolet and Corey LaJoy. Joining me on his off day. Even though he's still at the shop, still dressed, ready to go, working on stuff. There's no rest for the weary, Ryan. Even when you're off, you're still working on the clock. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to be good at this stuff, you got to eat, sleep, and breathe it. And uh, I know nothing else. So this is what I do even in my spare time and uh, enjoy every minute of it. I'm fortunate to, to get to do what I love. So um, a lot of fun, even if it's on your off day. Yeah. It's a busy time for a crew chief right now, as it always is. And the summer stretch is coming up. One off weekend throughout the entire 36 points paying races this year. That's got to just be daunting to even think about. It's another thing to be in it every single week. So even when you have an off day and you can't use it, it is what it is. Like you said, you love it. Embrace the grind. Yeah, absolutely. The The schedule is, is grueling this year. It's uh, one weekend off. That's tough. 
uh, it's, it's, it's hard to explain that to wives and girlfriends of my crew members and, and things yeah. like that. And, uh, you know, just, you know, it's much uh, appreciation to, for them to let, let them be able to do what they love as well. So, uh, we can have it get creative, you know, with giving some of those guys some time off throughout the year and, and, uh, but we'll do whatever to make it happen. Cause, uh, this is a long, uh, grueling se- season for sure. So you're the crew chief. You're the one that has to manage everybody, has to figure out how to make everything happen. A big part of this is burnout. I mean, you've seen it happen in the past with drivers, crew members, et cetera, et cetera. How do you, as the leader of the race team, manage that? How do you give guys time off when they need it, even when they may not know that they need it? And yourself, too, because you got to make sure that you're pacing yourself in the sport. Yeah, for me, you know, I just uh... – always try to, you know, I use the managing technique, you know, I wouldn't have anything do, uh, have someone do anything I wouldn't do, you know? So I'll get in and, and when those guys are working late, I'll, I'll hop in with them and, and dig with them. And, you know, I spend as much time with them going to lunch and, you know, hanging out on the road when we can, when we get an opportunity, trying to do some fun things here or there and just, uh, you know, try to keep the mood light because, uh, it's, it's, it's tough racing on Sundays. You know, you got the 40 best guys, uh, you know, not only drivers, but crew chiefs, engineers, mechanics, everything. It's, it's the best that operate on Sundays. So um, that's uh, rewarding in itself. But like I said, I just, just try to take care of my guys throughout the year. So I like to go all the way back with my guests. We're going to talk a little bit of racing, but we're going to talk about you as well. So you better be comfortable talking about yourself <laughs> and bragging on yourself. Because if you're not, I'll have to do it for you. Um, let's go all the way back to Bowman Gray. I think that's where your dad was a racer. This has kind of been in your family for for years. So racing has always been a part of your life for probably as long as you can remember, I would assume. Yeah, for sure. Actually, my grandfather drove over there um, in the 60s, and I got some pretty cool photos of him, uh, you know, doing that. And uh, my dad, you know, he was more like me. He did a lot of kart racing, but, uh, you know, he was a mechanic on some modifies over at Bowman Gray Stadium. And uh, kind of when I was old enough and – figured out what I wanted to do. I, I started working on modifies myself there for Bobby Hutchins. Uh, as soon as I get out of school, I'd go to his shop, work to midnight or however late we were working and then go racing on the weekend. I, you know, I didn't go to the lake or beach or, or have fun with my friends. You know, I was, uh, I was racing. Uh, that it's always been my passion. And, uh, you know, looking back, I'm, I'm glad I did what I did. Did you ever want to go down the driving path or was it always going to be the engineering route, the crew chief side of things? You know, my dad was a, pretty darn good kart racer uh all around the carolinas pretty much the east coast if there was a money race he was going and, and there was a good chance he was going to win it and uh I, I tried a little bit of driving but as they say it skips generations so i believe it skipped right over me and um <laughs> now i have a young niece and she's uh she's in a legend car uh, running the mm-hmm. summer shootout and so i believe uh like i said it skipped my generation and, and went right to her she's pretty talented and we have a lot of fun doing that with her now yeah, I definitely want to talk about her later on because it seems like you're a very, very passionate, proud uncle when it comes to helping her with her racing. So you went down into Bowman Gray, right? Your family's been there for years. What was it like the first time you walked in that place and you were in the madhouse? Oh, gosh. Literally, I was about a, probably a year and a half old. Um, <laughs> and I, we didn't miss a Saturday night. That's what my family did. You know, my dad would drop me off with my aunt. Or uh, my grandfather who would sit in the stands and then he, he would go down the pits to work on the cars or whatever. But, um, you know, I just 
I grew up there every Saturday night watching and, and just always been involved and super passionate about racing. And then, mm-hmm. like I said, when I got the opportunity, um, my mom was actually uh, Bobby Hutchins secretary at uh, Amp Incorporated before he went to Richard Childress Racing. So when he made the move over there, I had that connection there and, you know, helping him on his modified, he kind of got my foot in the door at RCR and, um, you know, uh, under his guidance, I went and got my engineering degree and, uh, felt like that was a good path to go. And, you know, I was really inspired what he had done in the sport. And so I kind of wanted to follow his footsteps. I want to stick on Bowman Gray for a minute. Weirdest thing that you've seen there. I've never been, and I want to go, but weirdest thing you've ever seen there. Well, I always say you can't go anywhere in the country for that amount of money and get the same amount of entertainment, right? You might go to a good fight and a race might break out. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Uh, you know, it's quarter mile flat track, single groove. You got to move somebody out of the way to pass more times than not. Uh, I I can't even imagine, you know, I've seen fans jump out of the grandstands and run across the track when there's been a fight in the middle of, you know, I've seen, uh, putting Swisher, uh, mad at the flag man for getting the black flag. He just stopped on the front stretch, get out of his car, go up on the flag stand, start waving flags, like crazy stuff, you know, um, it's, it's comical for sure, but obviously they're doing something right over there. There's uh, probably about eighteen to 20,000 people there every week mm-hmm. uh, all throughout the summer. You know, I wish uh, some more short tracks would pick up on it throughout the country. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned you got your engineering degree from UNC Charlotte. So you knew that obviously racing was going to be in the picture in some form or fashion. You just kind of didn't know at that point, I assume, how you were going to be involved in the sport. So when did the crew chief side of things and the engineering on stock cars specifically come into the focus for you? Like, did you always know from a young age that you wanted to work on cars instead of drive them or, or cover them on the media side? Like, when did you realize that going down the engineering route was going to be the path for you? Well, it, it just made sense, right? Because uh, this business is so tough uh, to be a part of, honestly. So, you know, getting my engineering degree just made sense. You know, if the racing deal didn't work out, you'd always have something to fall back on you know, uh, a good profession with an engineering degree. So uh, that was kind of my train of thought, but um, just, uh, and I did, I was a race engineer at uh, Richard Childress Racing for uh, almost 13 years and uh, working with Austin Dillon. And so learned a lot there. And, um, you know, I was really into race strategy and uh, I feel like I'm a really good people person. And that's uh, a lot of what a crew chief does. It's just kind of getting the most out of his people these days. Um, I rely heavily on my engineer um, to set up the car and obviously, uh, you know, we agree to what the car needs to be set up as and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, just getting the most out of your people and utilizing their skills is is a lot of what a crew chief does these days. And uh, I really enjoy doing it. 13 years at RCR is not an insignificant amount of time by any means. You definitely made your mark there. When did you first get there and did uh, did the the relationship that your mom had there help you get an in over there at all? So, yeah. So knowing Bobby Hutchins, uh, for sure. I, I literally took a week off after college graduation and then started working at RCR a week later. So, wow. um, I had done some saw, uh, small summer internships with those guys and, uh, got to, got to work with a lot of cool, uh, people that have been in the sport for a long time and, uh, started out as a data acquisition engineer and, you know, just kind of worked hard and paid attention and, and learned as much as I can uh, from the guys that, that were above me. And, uh, you know, got an opportunity when Austin came along. Uh, I was kind of next in line to get a race engineering position and, you know, hopped on his team and uh, working with him and Danny Stockman. And obviously we had a lot of success right out of the gate, winning rookie of the year and a 
couple races and then coming back the next year in the truck and win a championship and yeah. then uh, kind of repeated the same sequence in the Xfinity car. So data acquisition engineer versus race engineer. What's the difference for measly low lifes like me that just assume <laughs> that engineers do similar things? Well, yeah, it's all kind of similar, but uh, the, as a data acquisition engineer, you know, you did install and instrument all the cars with uh, tons of sensors. Um, you know, back in those days, we did a lot more testing. You know, we, we'd be somewhere about every week uh, yeah. trying to trying to better the cars, you know, we'd have a different philosophy. So we'd, we'd have all these sensors on the car to learn what it actually did and be able to process that data. And you also use the data that you gather, real real track data, to validate your simulation program. You know, make sure it's giving you the right, uh, the correct outputs. So, a uh, lot of time invested in that. And uh, so, a data acquisition engineer is, you know, helping validate the real track data to the simulated data, so that the race engineers can give the crew chiefs the right information to make the right calls on the weekend. So it sounds like almost the data acquisition engineer, which is the role that you first had when you got to RCR was kind of the backbone for allowing the race engineers, the crew chiefs, and in turn the driver make that, you know, I guess you can say go without the data acquisition engineer, you would be starting from square one and that's unacceptable when you get to the racetrack. So it seems like that was kind of the backbone of the race team in terms of how simulation and technology was advancing. You guys were on the forefront of that and that position that you held was also at the forefront of that. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's a fair assessment. Um, you know, uh, you, getting bad data is uh, easy to do if, if you don't uh, install and instrument your car uh, properly and stuff, and, right. which can lead you down a lot of wrong paths. So uh, extremely important job. Um, and unfortunately, it's, it's not uh, what it used to be with uh, limited testing. You know, there's just a few tire tests and, and just a couple team tests throughout the year. So um probably uh, not utilized as much anymore just for the lack right. of testing. When you were doing that job, you probably went to some interesting locations to test. I know back in the day, North Wilkesboro was a venue. I'm sure Rockingham was a venue. Did you ever go to any weird, strange, or interesting places to test yeah. on a random Tuesday or Wednesday during the week? Both of those. Spent a lot of time at VIR road course testing. Yep. Uh, out uh, at the desert proving grounds in, in Arizona in the middle of nowhere, uh, doing a bunch of aero stuff and just, you know, uh, Milwaukee mile when it wasn't on the schedule anymore, we'd go there and just kind of anywhere, you know, somebody'd come up with an idea and we'd make a test plan and, and try to go execute it. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I feel like it was uh, a big part of uh, RCR's success over the years and uh, it was a lot of fun and I learned a lot doing it. Testing super important. Drivers hate it. A lot of people hate it. How'd you feel about it? Because that was kind of the backbone of your job. It's a grind. When you're at a track, uh, you know, seven, basically probably seven to seven uh, all day and literally looking at squiggly lines all day, uh, it, you can uh, <laughs> kind of lose track. You know, it's hard to stay focused, but, uh, yeah. you know, you just got to kind of keep that end goal in sight, uh, which is uh, performing on Sunday. So, um like I said, it's pretty tough to, to stay focused for an entire test, but like you've yeah. got a good test plan and you stick to it and, and, and get the results you're looking for, it's rewarding. I always imagine it's weird to go into a racetrack and having race cars on the track, but no one or nothing being there at all, which probably made racing with COVID so weird. But even before that, when testing was a thing, the idea of it is weird in theory, but it's also kind of cool. And then an application, like you said, you can kind of zone out and just be like, wow, I've been staring at this computer for 12 hours. I kind of want to go home now. 
Oh yeah. Like I said, it's, it, it's a grind and it, it gets old quick, especially when you're going, you know, every week, it never stops. It seems like, but uh, as I said, you know, when, when you, when you test something or you come up with something, you test it and then you implement it on your race car and you see success on, on the weekends. That's uh that's pretty rewarding. So uh, unfortunately we don't have that option, not a whole lot of development and new parts with the next gen car, but uh, you know, it's all very new to us. So we're right now we're optimizing setups and, uh, you know, learning where to, uh, you know, where to move the body, what it, what it wants to uh, be like on track attitude wise and stuff like that. So a lot to learn yet still just uh, kind of doing it a different way. now. So at RCR, once you moved up from the data acquisition side of things to the race side of things and you became a race engineer, how did the day to day role for you change specifically? Like, were you traveling to the track more? Was the work that you were doing and the data that you were analyzing different? How did your job description change? Yeah. So, I mean, instead of like a a global company thing, you're kind of focused on one vehicle, you know, the overall performance of that car or or truck as it was at the time. Uh, So, you know, just kind of preparing for each and every weekend, uh, going over race strategy, tire data, uh, what you fought last time, uh, building a proper simulation model so you can try to optimize the setup before you get to the track or at least have a good game plan of how you're going to attack practice. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, uh, also all important things, just like doing the data stuff, but uh, just kind of shifted uh, focus a little bit. And uh, maybe you'd lean on on some of your uh, co-engineers and, and, and just try to, you know, execute a good plan for the weekend. So your first job out of college is working for one of the most iconic race teams in all of motorsports. And it's a huge team with hundreds of employees, so much rich history associated with it. Were you intimidated at all by that, or was you, were you just young, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, and said, all right, let's do it? No, not really. Uh, just kind of growing up around the sport and uh, actually had a lot of friends and knew a lot of people that had already worked there. So it was a pretty seamless transition, you know. Um, it felt like home right away, you know. Yeah. And just pretty much got to work, and, and you know, they took me in, and I'm sure I did a lot of stupid things along the way starting out, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I always say sometimes you don't learn unless you mess up. So uh, I'm sure there's many mistakes along the way, but, uh, you know, I had a good uh, group of guys around me to lean on and, and obviously uh, brought me to a good spot where I am today. So you mentioned you worked with Austin Dillon. I assume you worked with him on the cup stuff eventually, but did you start down in trucks and move up to Xfinity with him before you went cup racing? Yeah, so my first uh, race engineering gig was uh, the, the three truck when we brought that back in 2010 and uh, stayed with Austin all the way to 2019 in the Cup Series. So uh, still got a pretty strong relationship with him and, uh, and you know, uh, lean on him quite a bit still. Uh, he's, a, he's a good friend of mine and, and uh, wants to see me succeed, even though I'm at a different company and, and likewise for him. So uh, very appreciative of uh, the relationship we have and, uh, you know, what we've learned from each other over the years. You're a champion as well. Austin's won his handful of championships in those divisions too. So what was it like being able to be a part of a team and experience winning a title in the top form of NASCAR? You know, it was awesome. Uh, it's just this a feeling you really can't describe, you know, just even winning one of these races in the top three series is it's so incredibly hard. Yeah. Uh, the, just the blood, sweat, and tears that go into this stuff. It is unbelievable, uh, you know, the feeling. But on, on the flip side of that, it's 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 short-lived. You know, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I felt like it was going to, you know, 
we'd be talking about this all winter, you know, we're the champions, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, maybe a week went by and it's like, all right, we're on the next year. It was done. You know what I mean? So yeah. it was like, like, what's going on here? You know, I feel like we should still be uh, living this up a little bit. But, uh, you know, that's that's how it is in this business. You got to move on and, and, and work on the next task. You know, next year's right around the corner. So, uh, you know, you got to celebrate pretty hard when you get those uh, wins. Yeah. You don't know when the next one's coming or if it'll ever come. So, but you can't waste any time and you got, got to get right back to work as well. Right. I was going to say, I hope you did celebrate those truck and Xfinity wins and championships because those are hard to get, as you know, and I'm sure that you celebrated accordingly. I hope. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there was a few sleepless nights, Good. so we were probably a little, little lazy at work the next few days, but uh, we, yeah. we got through it. Sleepless in Miami. That's the name, right? <laughs> Man, actually, funny story. They had a banquet on the Monday night, I think, after the, that's the race. That's right. Yeah. So, of course, we had a pretty late night. And uh, got a phone call about eight o'clock in the morning from the flight attendant. And I mean, who schedules an eight o'clock flight, uh, 8 a.m. flight the next morning after banquet? She's like, you going to make it? And uh, the answer was no. I still had my tux on and uh, <laughs> in bed. It just uh, so needless to say, I had to find a ride home from Miami. And uh, oh, yeah. 15, uh, 15 hour drive after a sleepless night is not very fun. Oh, so you have to drive it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, were you alone? No, no uh, fortunately, one of the guys on his team, his uh, his girlfriend at the time, had uh, driven down uh, to go to the banquet or whatever. So I hopped a ride in with him, and thank okay. God I didn't have to drive. Yeah, that would not have been good for anybody. I don't think. No. <laughs> <laughs> so you won your handful of races in trucks and Xfinity. You won the championships as well, and you won a, a couple cup races as well: the Coke Six Hundred, the Daytona Five Hundred. Let's start off with with the latter of those first, Daytona. I mean. Growing up in the sport as you have, being in NASCAR for at that point, you know, and at this point now, almost two full decades, not to age you, Ryan, Daytona is the pinnacle, right? The 500 is the 500 for all the reasons that are associated with that race. The fact that you are a winner of that race and you can say that you have won a Daytona 500 just for your resume, that's got to do wonders, but also just from a from a mental standpoint. I mean, to be able to say that you're a Daytona 500 champion, that's something that not a lot of people can say. Yeah, extremely fortunate to be a part of a good team. You know, uh, we had a lot of good guys around us at the time and, uh, you know, brought some some quality products to the racetrack in and, and those years at RCR. And, uh, yeah, there's there's nothing like Daytona. Honestly, I got chills right now just talking about it. It's, it's just something about that place when you walk in. It, it just it gets you fired up. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how we kick off our season. And, uh, yeah, extremely, uh, that is probably other, there's one other place I'd like to win other than that. And that's Martinsville. It's so close to my home. And I feel like it's the, um, it's kind of the, the type of racing I grew up on, you know, short track, flat track, uh, beating and banging a little bit. Right. And, uh, so that, that clock is, uh, definitely on my radar and, uh, it's something I'd like to accomplish, uh, uh, during my years in the sport. I remember that that year that you guys won that 500 um, and Almarola got sent into the wall, I think, uh, coming into turn three. At that point, right, I have to imagine for you and for everybody on the team, pit crew, crew chief, everybody back home and welcome, it's got to be such a helpless feeling because you know all the work that you've put in is about to come to fruition, right? The car is ready. The car is in position. Austin knows what he has to do. 
but you have no control over any of that. So what is the feeling like for you atop the pit box or wherever you were at that point, knowing that you were this close to winning the Daytona 500 and it's in your grasp, but you have no control over anything. That's uh speedway races are so hard to win in general. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of rewarding. It's a, an emotional roller coaster uh, to go through a speedway race, right? You can be leading that race, get pregged, get shuffled to the back all within a matter of seconds. Right. And I'll never forget that moment when he, when he got in the back of Amarillo and, and literally it just, it was silence on our pit box. Right. Like it felt like everything was in slow motion from that point. And we just, we were looking towards uh turn forward, you know, hoping, you know, what we saw on the, on the screen was, was reality. Right. Yeah. And, uh, we, we, he came around that corner and had such a big lead and then it wasn't very quiet for very long. So, uh, <laughs> that was a very memorable night. I'll never forget that one for sure. Uh, those things are hard to win. Uh, you know, there's some guys that have been fortunate enough to do it several times and, uh, you know, speedway racing is tough. So, uh, it's, uh, you got to celebrate them. Maybe we'll just a little extra hard, especially. By Did you get that tattoo that night? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, actually, no. Um, <clears throat> I already had the tattoo, by the way. That's that may be for another story, but I, funny story. One of my mechanics, uh, we were kind of shooting the bull in tech line that morning, and uh, he he said, "If we win this race tonight, I'll get that tattoo tonight." So if you go back and you you can hear the broadcast in the background, I'm yelling at him saying, "You're getting a tattoo tonight." And uh, <laughs> there was a handful of us that did. He did not have approval from his wife, and she oh. found out uh from a video that leaked on social media and he he didn't tell her first so he got uh that ain't good he got a um he got chewed out when he got home for sure so he had a rough couple weeks but i think that everybody looks uh back on it and laughs now so uh yeah we're there's a handful of us that are a part of the the wolf pack you could say and we're all still pretty tight these days but you didn't get that tattoo you got a different one no so i don't have the actual daytona 500 winning tattoo um, I may not have been capable to, to get a tattoo at that point, but, uh, uh, no, there's a, there's a, uh, group of us that have a, a matching one and, uh, it's, it's pretty funny, but, um, yeah, whatever. Disclosed information. <laughs> I take it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. So you win the Daytona 500. You guys also won the Coke 600 together. That was a bit of a different race for different reasons that that was a fuel mileage game. And the 600 miles, that that 100 miles, you know, people say, oh, yeah, it's just another 100 miles. I'm sure you can attest to it. It doesn't feel like just another 100 miles. It feels like so much longer and so much more agony, especially when you're in a position like you guys were and did to win that race. It feels like it's just counting down so slowly. But that night, things worked out for you guys as well. And that's a crown jewel race for a lot of reasons. And you got two of them now. Yeah, that was uh, also a lot of fun, and that was a little more stressful, honestly. Uh, you know, uh, the simulation group had been working on uh, some fuel-saving methods, uh, you know, leading up to that race, not specifically for that race, but just in general. You know, we wanted to be able to capitalize on things when we got an opportunity, and that night was perfect for it. We had ran about sixth or seventh all night, had a good car, and uh, we pitted with 70 laps to go. There was a caution, and everybody was just outside the window. So – we um uh i knew we could make it i believe it was 63 or 64 laps and uh when he got off pit road we told him to start saving immediately and then as soon as the green dropped you know as soon as we settled in in line we started going through our procedures of uh fuel saving 
and uh, we pretty much made her bed. And and I remember, I'll never forget RC coming over the digital saying, if, you know, if you're going to run out of fuel, you know, pit with the leaders, don't throw away a good finish or whatever. And uh, I, I responded, uh, 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 no, sir, we're not pitting. We're going all the way. And uh, he, he definitely doubted me for sure. He might <laughs> tell you he didn't, but he, uh, he did. But in victory lane, he gave him a big old hug and, and said he never doubted me. Well, I don't, I'm not sure if I believe it, though. But uh, I was after that, after I told him we were going all the way, I was like, man, I hope we go all the way or it's just not going to be good. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, as you know, uh, RC, he can be a pretty intimidating guy, but uh, mm-hmm. he's got a heart of gold. Uh, a lot of people probably don't know that from the outside looking in, but uh, it was, uh, I was very fortunate to work for him for 13 years. Did you doubt yourself in that moment or were you pretty confident? What, uh, you know, after, after I told him that we were going all the way, I was like, Ooh. Man, I really hope this works out. You're but, like, damn, I really said that. Okay. <laughs> but it's like, it was perfect, right? Everybody been working so hard on it. It's like, if we just bowed out at that point and just settled for a decent finish, it's like, what are we working so hard for? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was, it was rewarding for all the guys that, that had put a lot of time and effort in, in that program. And it, so that was uh, that was pretty cool to be a part of. So you obviously went to go crew chief with Corey at GoFast. You're at Spire now, but... How did the chapter close at RCR? Did the GoFast opportunity get presented to you? Did you go to them? Were you just kind of looking to take the next step in your professional development? How did that time period work for you? You know, honestly, we had a terrible year in 2019 with Austin, and uh, there was just some changes being made, and, uh, you know, it just kind of didn't work out for me to continue uh, on that team. And, you know, it was pretty emotional, and it, it was rough, uh, uh for me for sure and you know rc actually personally called me a couple days later and uh he had talked uh with uh the 32 team and and told them that that i was a guy that deserved an opportunity and um so archie st hilaire i I met with him and he was kind of doubtful me kind of being so young and and never um never you know having an opportunity to crew chief before so of course he was like man i don't know if i should take a chance on this guy but you know, we had a couple of good meetings and, and he did, and it, it all worked out. And, uh, it's funny, RC, he still, he, he stops me from time to time on pit road to tell me how proud of me he is. So I'm super thankful for him. Uh, you know, he, uh, everything happens for a reason. And if it wasn't for him, I, I probably wouldn't even have this opportunity. So, uh, extremely thankful. It's really cliche to say, but I mean, to have a hall of famer be in your corner, go out of his way to call somebody and give you a vote of confidence. And even now, still all these years later, you know, have a relationship with you, be invested in you and your career. That's, that's really got to be a pinch me type of moment, especially from somebody that's grown up in the area and grown up in the sport. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I give him a hard time. Uh, you know, I say, uh, you know, I have to drive right behind your shop every morning when I'm going to work, RC, you know, just, <laughs> you know, that, that extra hour drive you gave me, you know, but, uh, we kind of laugh it off, but, uh, yeah, yeah. no, it, it's, it's, uh, it's such a, you know, pretty cool uh, to have him uh, have those thoughts about me and, and still have a good relationship with him. So when you were talking with Archie, maybe you're talking with Mason as well at GoFast, what did you say to convince them to give you a shot to be a crew chief at the Cup Series level? Because it's one thing to to be at, be at an Xfinity and trucks. It's another thing to be at the Cup Series level as an engineer like you. It's a whole other thing to lead a group of, of, of a team and be a crew chief, albeit for a smaller team, but – it's a big, big undertaking. So what did you say to, to help you land the job with them? You know, their biggest fear was uh, just being on the radio and uh, being able to call the race, right? 
So they, they had no doubt about setting up the car or, or putting speed in it or anything like that. It was all just, uh, you know, calling the race on Sunday and being able to execute a race. Like strategy aspects? Yeah, the strategy aspects. So I was like, man, that's that's my forte. Like, that that's my favorite thing to do, you know? And uh, I, we just had a good meeting. We just kind of clicked. Uh, there were some good guys to work with. I had a lot of fun with them. Mason actually yeah. popped in this weekend at Talladega and surprised me and, awesome. and uh, you know, uh, really enjoyed working for them. They're great people. And, uh, you know, they, like I said, they kind of continued on and, and helped me get where I am today. So uh, much appreciation to them as well. And it, it's, uh, they were a lot of fun to work with. It was a smaller team and, and uh, I had to get my hands dirty a lot, which uh, I don't mind doing at all. And uh, just kind of, you know, coming from a big team, almost puts you back to reality a little bit, you yeah. know, and, and reminds you how you got to where you did. And uh, so that was a lot of fun. And uh, it's, it's good to, to see those guys from time to time. That's exactly what I was going to ask, because, again, you know, you grow up working on your own stuff, kind of scratching and clawing your way to get opportunities, working, grinding through the night on the local level. Then out of college, you work for a behemoth organization that has structure, that has all these resources. And it seems like at some points, you know, endless amounts of cash flowing through to try to make the performance of the race team better. And then to have a bit of a culture shock and a reality change to go to go fast to from, you know, multiple hundreds of employees to double digit employees. And we're not even talking in the nineties. We're talking probably in the teens of the twenties. That had to be a bit of a change for you and, and a real culture shock because you go from being a small fish in a big pond to being a bigger fish in a small pond. So it was a big, big shift for you in terms of how you probably conducted yourself day to day in your role. Yeah, for sure. Like going in, uh, you know, I was fortunate to walk into such a good situation. I was, I was kind of surprised. Uh, they had some really good people there. And uh, I believe that, I want to say there was 21 of us, including myself, uh, to run a cup team. That is, that is hard to do. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, it, I was a little, uh, I don't think intimidated was the word, but, you know, there were some guys that worked under me that are a lot older than me, right? And that's just, that's awkward. There's no other way to put it, you know? Yes. So, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, I had tried not to come in and just – work for dumb reasons and change things, just a change thing. I had to, you know, understood where we stood, uh, you know, where we stood as a race team. And, uh, you know, I just eventually kind of gained the respect and uh, I had a lot of fun working with all those guys and, and still friends with a lot of them. And um, uh, there's uh, quite a few that uh, have came over to Spire with me and uh, we're still working together. Did you find that hard at all to, to gain respect of some people that were working for you that were older than you? Because like you said, there's no other way to say it. It's just kind of an awkward situation. But at the end of the day, you guys are all pulling in the same rope in the same direction, and that's to try to get the 32 car to run better on Sundays. So I'm sure it took a little bit of time, but was it hard for you to try to gain that respect of some people that are your peers but maybe a little bit more experienced? I wouldn't say it was like extremely difficult or anything like that. You just kind of got to understand how people operate and kind of what makes them tick. Right. Uh, You know, what, what makes them want to do what they do. Right. So uh, try to get the best out of them. And, you know, there's, you got to approach each and every person differently. Right. People respond different ways to different things. So uh, the quicker I learned that uh, was, was fortunate for me and, and just, to help people get on my side and, and pull the pull the road the same direction for sure. Yeah. But uh, that it people is is my main job right now is is, is getting the most out of our people and, and that it's not always easy and there's always something going on and something you have to face. But uh, 
just uh, being there for all your people and, and, you know, not just at work, but outside the, the racetrack, I think means a lot to them. And that's, uh, that's just kind of the way I want to operate. My phone's always on. So, and they know they can always lean on me. Working with your driver, Corey, over at the 32 car. Obviously you guys are together now at Spire. How did you see him develop from when you first started working with him at go fast until your guys's tenure at go fast came to a close. Cause like you said, and he always says it too, you guys were participating in one of the races within the race. You guys were not there to win every single week. You were there to try to improve on your performance week to week. And some days a top 25 would be a win. Some days a top 30 would be a win. It was about making the most out of that specific opportunity, that specific week. And the driver is obviously a big, big hand in that. Yeah, that's that's kind of tough to shift your mindset to that, right? Because as a racer, you you want you want the best, you want to win. But obviously, um, with budgets and people, the Cup Series is extremely hard. So, like you said, excuse me, uh, it's a race within a race, and that's what we try to do. Uh, we just try to exceed expectations, right? Give ourselves more opportunities. Him and I are a lot alike, right? I'm trying to make a name for myself as a crew chief, just like he is as a driver. Yep. So I think we feed off of each other, uh, being able to do that. And, you know, we kind of push each other a little bit on how to be better. And it, it's worked out really well. Um, when I went to go fast, I was excited to work with Corey because I knew uh, the success he had in his own canyon car that he turned wrenches on himself. You know, uh, things didn't work out for a while. Then he tried his hand at crew chief in a little bit and then got another opportunity to drive. So I just know how much, uh, how passionate he is and how hard he works and, and uh, so that made it pretty uh, and a pretty easy decision for me to, to want to come work with him. So the charter system goes crazy, right? The market's blowing up, go fast, things you know deteriorate there, and the team decides to cease operations and close. And as that is kind of winding down, you know, it comes out that Corey's going to Spire, and he's taking you with him, or maybe you're going to Spire and you're taking him with you. How did that whole process play out in terms of the timeline when? You found out that GoFast was going to be shutting down at the end of the year. Spire had an opening. Corey was going there. You guys wanted to stay together. Take me through that mindset and the process that that was. I guess now we're looking back on it about a year and a half, two years ago. Yeah, when we when we all found out that uh, that we were going to have to do something different the next year, it was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd never experienced that, you know, never been through that. I've been pretty fortunate to be at a big race team for, for a long time. Uh, but a lot of the guys I'd worked with, you know, <laughs> it seemed normal to them. Right. Um, so, um, nothing bad to say about those guys at 32. They took very good care of us, uh, better than most race teams would, uh, in the series, I feel like, but, um, you know, so obviously started exploring opportunities and, and, um, and seeing what was out there, whether I go back to be a race engineer for a team or, or if I get another opportunity or if I have to go back down to Xfinity, the crew chief or whatever. So, uh, explored some options and, um, you know, knew that, that, uh, was going to have a, a, a chance to stay with Corey at, at Spire. So that was my, my, uh, number one for sure. And, uh, everything worked out great. And the guys over here at Spire, you know, uh, we're, we're in year two. We're, we're trying to build a successful team. Uh, try to we lose sight of that sometimes, uh, and you have to bring everybody back down to reality. It's like, hey, hey guys, we're, we're in year two here. We're racing against teams that have been in business for 50 years that have uh, uh, hundreds of employees, you know? And uh, so I think what we've accomplished in a short, uh, short amount of time is, 
has been decent. You know, we always want more. But, uh, you know, like I said, we just kind of keep reminding ourselves to, to focus forward, focus on the end goal, and we're in year two. So I kind of joked about it. I mean, like, did Corey recruit you or did you recruit Corey, right? But how, how did it work? Was it a situation where Corey had his plan set in stone and he knew he was going to go over there and he wanted you to go with him? Or did they call you independently? How did that work? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, Corey spoke highly of me and, and um, you know, told the uh, TJ Pusher and Jeff Dickerson, you know, hey, you need to you know, consider Ryan. I know he only has one year, blah, 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 whatever. So then the talk started uh, with, with those guys and uh, had a few good meetings and, and uh, you know, because I didn't, I didn't know any of those, any of them, any of Spire Management before, right. before I came over here. So, uh, you know, um, they treated me really well and I'm, I'm super happy to be here. But it was a pretty easy and smooth transition. It's, uh, it's a small but uh, good core group of, I've heard you in interviews talk about building the organization and building the team brick by brick. And you can look at that and say, okay, that means, you know, results building on results, but it's different in motorsports. It's different in NASCAR. It's different for the position that you guys are in. So when you say building a team brick by brick, what does that look like for you? Like, do you have tangible goals that you want to hit? Do you have things that you want to accomplish that are at a certain time frame? What does building a team brick by brick look like to you? Well, it, it all started literally. Uh, we, we assumed the building on, uh, I think, December 1st of uh, 20, 2020. So uh, the first thing brick by brick was literally painting the building, painting the walls, <laughs> making it look like Spire Motorsports, putting our colors on the wall, yeah. uh, getting people in here, trying to you know get good, solid mechanics and, and uh you know, that, that was the first part of, uh, of laying the first uh, few bricks of the foundation, you know, is uh, building a solid core group of people. And I feel like we've done a pretty good job of that. Uh, and then, you know, the next is, uh, you know, building a better product each and every week, you know, learning, uh, don't stop pushing. It's easy to get complacent where we're at and uh, kind of, you know, realize we're the race within the race. But uh, with the next gen, it's created a new opportunity. We all have the same stuff. Uh, it's still very much an uphill battle, um, being a smaller team strength is in numbers, whether it's people or money. Um, so we're, we're working hard every day to, to achieve that, to get that, uh, more people, that bigger budget and, uh, just be able to lay the next brick. So you mentioned GoFast had around 20, 21 employees full-time there. RCR probably had in a neighborhood of anywhere from 150 to 300 or something like that. Where does Spire stack up with higher than that? Four, five? At one time, at one time when they had four cars, uh, they were north of four hundred. I'm pretty oh, sure. I didn't think about the fact that they had. Yeah, four but cars. I, no, I'm considering the engine shop too. So, which yeah. is all kind of one. So it was a lot yeah. of people for sure. Well, yeah, because I know like Hendrick, the number has been around like five hundred or so. But I didn't even think about RCR having four cars back at that time, and they had an Xfinity program, and they have the engine shop, yeah. and the truck team. Yeah. Wow. yeah it was wild. Okay. So it probably was around like four, five, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that further emphasizes the fact that you were a small fish in a big pond at that point, even though your role was really, really important. You go to go fast where you go from <laughs> a few hundred people, several hundred people to 20 people. And now you're at Spire where you've definitely kind of made a home for yourself. And you're one of the people that is helping this organization build. 
brick by brick, but take us through the numbers of it. Like how many people do you guys have working in the race shop and how does that compare to some of the other teams that are both on your level in the midfield and also on the higher levels in the front of the pack? So we operate day to day in the motorsport shop uh, with 28 people now, <clears throat> which we've increased uh, from the beginning of the year. So last year, first year, <clears throat> our whole intent was not to overhire because we didn't know what the next gen car was going to bring. Right. Right. We didn't want to. We didn't want to um, overhire and then maybe have to downsize because you didn't need those guys with the next gen anymore. And uh, we, we didn't want to mess with people's livelihood, right? So we operated lean year one uh, purposely. And then uh, as we, the next unit has presented challenges that we didn't think we'd necessarily face, um, to put it lightly, I guess, or, or uh, it's not easy to work on. Uh, you know, there's a lot of parts and pieces. Things are hard to get to. It's tough. So we've increased uh, staff over the year. And, uh, you know, just continuing to build and, 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 you know, we're having to put more processes. We're trying to implement more structure as we build, you know, so when we, we get all these people in place, we're organized and, and we're, we're going to operate more like a big team as we grow. Uh, but our whole thing is we want to keep the small team mentality. We want to keep it fun. We want a tight knit group. Um, so, so yeah, 28, 28 people is what we get it done with two cup teams. And uh, that's a that's a lot of late nights still, and uh, and a lot of hard work. But um, these these guys over here are relentless. They don't they don't they don't quit. Uh, they can't get enough of it. And I'm super thankful for to have such a good group behind me. Um, interesting enough, uh, another two car team, Trackhouse, just won yesterday at Talladega. Uh, I think they operate with 128 people. So that'll kind of put it in perspective a little bit. Definitely. I think I don't necessarily think that's the number you need to go win races. Um, Devis definitely wouldn't turn it down if it was available. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I kind of want to say I feel like the magic number is around fifty for, uh, or you know, twenty-five to thirty per, per car would be yeah. optimal. So I, I think as the next gen progresses and, and teams uh, uh, learn more about the car and what they need to do or what not need to do, I, I think there's potential that some of the big teams could downsize uh, in the future. It's interesting because Spire has presented itself in a unique spot right now in terms of the motorsports landscape being an interesting place to work because there's obviously the sports and the entertainment agency aspect of things. There's the race team expansion and that aspect of things. And with the next gen car, there's still a bit of uncertainty in terms of whether teams need to hire more people or whether teams need to downsize a little bit. So I appreciate your honesty being last year, you guys were purposefully a little bit leaner because you weren't sure what to expect coming into this year. But at the same time, you're not going to turn down more people for sure. But at the same time with that comes a different responsibility because you don't want to overhire people and then have people doing different jobs that aren't necessarily helping the end goal, which is, to help run better and win races. So it's a tough balance to strike, especially for you as a crew chief, who is a bit of a people manager, right? You need to make sure that everybody's in their place doing what they are assigned to do. But if you have too many of those people, too many cooks in the kitchen could be a bad thing. And too little cooks in the kitchen, you can't get everything done. So it's hard to strike that balance and, and find the sweet spot of people. Yeah. And that's, that's what we're, we're learning each and every week. You know, we just, we added a guy to our road crew, um, um, a couple weeks ago, just uh, what we thought with just uh, the 
quick 15 minute practice and qualifying. You really didn't need all the people, but turns out you do, you know, I mean, he's, <laughs> yeah, there's always something going on and it happens extremely quick at the racetrack. So, yeah. um, you know, we feel like that's helpless. Uh, and, and little things like that, just putting processes in place and, and say, hey, we, we need a guy. We, need, we have to dedicate one guy to this job or, or whatever, you know. Uh, my engineer also built all the dampers last year. Well, now there's so many moving parts with the dampers. And he, he came to me and, and says, you know, we, we need to hire a damper guy. I can't keep up. I can't do the simulation and the dampers with, with the next gen car uh, with the new style shop. So, you know, we've added a damper guy. And uh, it's, you know, so those are the kind of growing pains we're going through this year with the new car. It's totally new to everybody. And uh, so, like I said, we've added a, a few bricks this year. I'm not trying to get you in trouble here, but we got to talk about the suspension, right? When the wheel falls off, you get suspended for four weeks. First of all, what'd you do? Was it actually vacation? Did you go and get some tanning on down, down in the sun? No, I worked. Uh, four <laughs> you weeks, don't say. Four weeks uh, straight. Uh, so obviously I, you know, I didn't, a lot of crew chiefs still, they'll operate from a war room or maybe like a Chevrolet or Ford or Toyota hauler at the racetrack. That's not inside the garage because when you're suspended, you basically can't be in the garage or pit road and you can't be on the, the main radio communicating with the driver. That's, that's kind of the big requirements. So, um, you know, I, I felt like that it wasn't going to make a difference if I was, there at the racetrack or being at home since I wasn't able to, you know, be, you know, person to person, uh, with Corey, have that dialogue, um, right. and kind of feed off that emotion. If I wasn't going to be in the garage, then I think I was better served at home, you know, trying to see what we had going on back at the shop, see what their struggles were when we were gone, when there was a lot of people out of the shop. So, and just trying to make that better, uh, throughout the four weeks that I was home and take advantage of it. And then on the weekends, when the guys were in the garage, I was on my computer ready to to react to whatever problem they had or whatever they needed from me. So uh, it was a long four weeks for sure. Um, I'm totally cool with off weekends as long as everybody else is not at the racetrack playing without me. Yeah. So that was definitely not fun, and I don't want to do that again. Well, but, Corey uh, mentioned at uh, Talladega, you know, he said that it was a bit of a different aspect to the suspension for Spire because, you know, bigger teams, they have war rooms and they have ways to communicate technologically that you guys candidly didn't. So not having you at the racetrack and not having you in the day-to-day and the weekends, that hit you guys, and Corey said, him differently than it probably would have if either you guys were at a different team or if this happened to a bigger team, just because the sheer number of people that you guys have and the resources that you have at your disposal are not that of a Hendrick, an RCR, Gibbs, Stuart Haas, Penske, those type of teams. So that probably made the last month or so really, really tough on you guys. I, I know no, you probably took it the toughest since you were the one that was having to be at home and wasn't able to be there. But it seems like it just hit Spire and you know a team like Front Row or something like that, what happened to Seth Barber, hits you guys a little bit harder than it does the bigger teams. Yeah, for sure. Just you know the lack of depth. Fortunately, we had Peter Suspenzo to fill in for me. Got a ton of experience on the bike, so you know thankful that he didn't mind doing that. Uh, that for me for the last four weeks, but uh, I missed out on that uh, Corey's top five, first top five ever at Atlanta too. That was such a bummer. I think uh, it's a sign. A he does better without you. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> one out of uh, one out of four. The next three were extremely rough for us, and uh, you know, uh, for me to not be there and go through that struggle with my guys, you know, I I, I don't like that part of it as well. You know, I, I want to be there when it's successful. I also want to be when 
be there in the bad days, you know, to help pick everybody up. But um, for me, you know, I just tried to make it into a positive and mm -hmm. uh, learn something from it. So I'm, you know, not being able to have the high dollar communication systems where I can have an open mic conversation with those guys live during the race, uh, not having that kind of technology to, to help call a race from home that, so I just, I kind of watched from a bird's eye view for four weeks and, and, and tried to learn where I thought we could be better uh, kind of saw what other people did and, and try to improve upon, upon myself, how I needed to change in, in, in those four weeks. So, um, you know, uh, I guess not really soul searching, but just kind of try to learn a little bit about yourself and look at things from a different perspective. And, uh, you know, i got a lot of good people around me and, and good mentors and, and, and they've, you know, I learned a lot in those four weeks. To, uh, hopefully that didn't apply throughout the rest of the week been a lot of chatter around the industry Corey being one of the most vocal people about this this rule of if a wheel comes off crew chief automatically suspended for four weeks about that rule potentially getting changed again i'm not trying to get you in trouble or anything here but i think that the rule this is me talking here not ryan the rules a bit antiquated in the sense of it was when the wheel had five lug nuts back with the gen 6 car next gen car single lug it's a bit different now and nobody is going to purposefully not tighten their lug nut to want a wheel to fall off so it's not to gain a performance advantage it's a safety thing which is totally understandable but Corey was in the camp of maybe lessening the suspension to maybe one or two weeks instead of four which is pretty debilitating for a team like you guys or any team for that matter where do you stand on that do you think that four weeks is maybe a bit too much and do you think that that rule could maybe be revisited yeah I, and I think it will be in this it's obviously too late now it would be fair to change the rule uh, for the guys that have already had to sit out, right? Um, I think it just kind of got overlooked a little bit, to be honest with you. Um, you know, when when it was up to me, where I told my pit crew to say, hey, let's hit three lugs here, guys, and, and speed this pit stop up, and uh, we'll worry about the repercussions on the backside, you know what I'm saying? That, you know, I can, I, I'm good with that. I'll take that right. if the wheel comes off. Uh, now, you know, they have this uh, – uh, retaining lock system when the nuts pass a certain point these locks come out and, and the nut shouldn't shouldn't come off i don't i don't know how well that works right now you know our, our wheel didn't come off and uh until we hit the wall pretty hard uh, it's hard to say if it's uh if it was actually loose or if it was uh from the wreck hard to say but um yeah. You know, it's unfortunate uh, that, you know, I think I'm one of four or five guys that have had to sit out four weeks. The 78 is going to get a penalty uh, from this week at Talladega. Mm -hmm. Spoke with BJ after the race yesterday. Uh, the, the, the unfortunate part is the drivers can't feel it. So he had, you know, he felt a little something was wrong, but it's not a bad vibration like it used to be with the old car. So, uh, you know, I think the penalty in itself is, hey, you lost the wheel. You've damaged probably about fifteen to twenty thousand dollars worth of uh, carbon fiber on your car by dragging it on the racetrack. You're getting last place points, last place money, more than likely, because it's going to take you a few laps to to recover from it and, and get that wheel back on. So, I think the penalty you penalize yourself enough by you know letting one come off. Uh, but yeah, there's there's nobody's trying to speed up the pit pit stop to not get it as tight. So I think in the future they'll they'll revisit that rule for sure. Yeah, it's a good point because a lot of people are saying, fix it now, fix it now. But right. just from a from a looks perspective, and also it just wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be an even playing field if, you know, next week Joe Schmo or Kevin Harvick's wheel flies off, Rodney Childers gets suspended for one week instead of four. It just – it wouldn't be fair. So I think that's fair. I, and I think they probably will revisit it in the offseason too. 
Yeah, I, I, it needs. I feel like it needs to be, and uh, yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how many more times it happens throughout the year. But uh, those those crews are they're paid to, to push to push it. You know, they, they yeah. need to go as fast as they can. And when you when you're operating like that, mistakes are going to happen, and, and that's just part of it. But uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what 2023 brings. Did you get one of those free Sparky T-shirts? You know, I never got the T-shirt, but uh, really, uh, yeah, Come no, on. it's a bummer. Uh, you know, I've, I've known uh, that fellow there with that shirt for a while. Uh, he's a big part of the Joy fan, and uh, we talk quite a bit on social media. It's it's, it's fun to interact with the fans and and uh, develop a relationship with those guys. Uh, Skip Flores, power changer on the two, he saw mm-hmm. it on pit road, so he snapped a picture and sent it to me, and uh, I thought it was pretty funny. So uh, much appreciated that I got some people <laughs> on my side and ready to go to battle with me against NASCAR, but unfortunately I don't think we had a leg to stand on. We gotta get you a shirt, though. I mean, I think that can be arranged, don't you? Yeah, I mean, surely to goodness we can we can get one. So yeah, I'll have to. You may know them. a guy. Yeah, maybe maybe we can all the whole team can wear them. Uh, hopefully, we don't have to wear them anymore. Hopefully, yeah. I'm, I stay free. Yes, yes. Hopefully, you remain free. Um, <laughs> talking about Skip uh, and Corey, obviously they have their their podcast now, Stacking Pennies. They had Sunday Money. Corey did last year with MRN. Um, I'm sure that there's been some times where maybe you've heard a comment that he made on the show and you're like, oh, I really wish, wish you wouldn't have shared that for the world to hear. Or, ah, well, you know, next time, maybe let's just keep that, keep that in house. Ha- has there been any of those moments or has it been mostly just, you know, what you're getting with Corey and he's a wide open book. You know, uh, maybe don't pass this information along, but I'm not a subscriber. <laughs> I Probably don't listen. I don't listen. I don't have time. Uh, I don't get caught up in all that crap that the drivers talk about <laughs> uh i'm Corey's a little different he gives a pretty good insight uh you know experiences that he's had and uh but uh you know i just i don't i don't listen i'm too focused on, on working and, and trying to improve and and but i understand why he does the things he yeah. does he's got a great fan base and interacts uh with with all the fans well and um he's a he's a funny guy really and he's yeah. fun to work with and, and just all around just a good good dude you know, so that's somebody I want to work hard for. But uh, no, I'm not a subscriber to the podcast. Sorry. You don't listen to his podcast, but you can watch my TikToks, I guess. Well, you know that I almost deleted TikTok, but it is pretty comical. Yeah. And uh, but it'll wrap you in, you know, those well, that's the thing. I don't man. I don't like watch videos. I literally just post mine and then leave. That's all I do. You know, so, <laughs> like, I, so I can't I've li- get wrapped I've up limited myself to five. Like before I go to bed, I was like, all right, you get five swipe ups to watch a TikTok then you're done. Yeah. So I haven't made any yet. I'm sure my niece is gonna try to get me to to start making some with her, but I I, I don't know about all that. But she uh she's got me wrapped around the finger, so I'm I'm yeah. sure if she uh if she wants me to do it, I'm sure I'll have to. <laughs> Speaking of your niece, I know that that's something very important to you and, and you're very passionate about that. She's a racer. You're a very proud uncle. Uh, as you mentioned earlier in the show, she's doing some summer shootout stuff at Charlotte. How did that come about and, and how is she progressing? Oh gosh, it was, it was crazy. You know, I, I never pushed the issue for her to race just because we know how much, uh, how involved it is, how much time it takes, how much money it takes. It's, it's crazy. And, uh, my life's already crazy enough with, with, uh, you know, being a cup crew chief, you know, the time is very limited, but uh, one of my good friends, Andy Houston, uh, his son Clark was um, racing a box stock at Millbridge years ago, and uh, I took her to go watch. And uh, you know, 
she had a great time and it wasn't long after that she you know she wanted me to build her one so of course i couldn't say no um first few races were a little rough you know rough around the edges i was like i don't know about all this and then like it was like a light switch she it clicked she got it it's awesome and i think she uh ran <clears throat> she won her last race of 2000 and like i can't even remember it was uh 16 17 maybe i i don't know and uh she um we come back the next year and she won 10 out of 18 and she's just got a knack for it. And wow. she, she impresses us. Uh, me and my dad will look at each other like, where did she learn it? Like, where'd she get the moves? You know, of course my dad takes a lot, all the credit for that, but uh, she's got a natural talent. She's a good kid. She's a lot of fun to be around and uh, we do it all as a family. So when we show up and race, there's about, we roll pretty deep. There's about 30 of us that show up. <laughs> it's the spark squad rolling up. What's yeah. her name? Her name's Casty Keat. Uh, just turned 13 and uh so she's in middle school and and uh wants to be a race car driver so we'll we'll, we'll see how it, how it all works out yeah we'll be hearing about her for years to come hopefully and and if the time comes uh you know i think Corey will understand if she wants to she wants you to be her crew chief i think that she'll understand if you have to leave oh you know that i don't know if i could do that working really? with family is so tough right I mean, that's the thing uh, I've kind of, me and LaJoy's kind of worked on this year is like brutal honesty, right? Mm-hmm. I want him to tell me when I'm when I'm not doing a good job or, or not heading the right direction, I want him to tell me. And, and, and whether he likes it or not, I'm going to tell him. So, yeah. uh, and, and I think that's a, a huge part of success, but not also to be able to, to, to be honest with each other, but be able to accept it and, and not, uh, you know, not have any negativity towards the other person, but, uh, you know, just to, you're doing it for the right reason to push forward and grow from it. Yeah, definitely. All right. I got a couple more fun, quirky questions for you since I did some Intel with some people. How often do you get your haircut? Uh, weekly. Actually I skipped last week. As you can see, the grays are coming in. Uh, <laughs> I go to Washington park barbershop and see my boy Javier every week, the fade factory in Winston Salem. There's nobody better. Go see my guys every week every week man and uh you know i get a hard time about it do i need a haircut every week probably not uh like i like to uh, I, I tell everybody all the time or my barbers hey i don't get fresh i stay fresh uh okay you know all right it's uh you know <laughs> hey i'm i'm single uh single man it's it's my only accessory i wear it every day so uh, yep. uh who doesn't enjoy a nice haircut but a lot of good guys out there uh you know the They'll keep a, a keg in the shop. They might hang out, have a couple of beers afterwards, like and then, uh, got some good friends up there. So uh, we, uh, I guess, I, I guess you could say, I spend. Uh, that's what I do with my my spare time. Once a week, I go to Washington Park Barbershop. Got to put that on a T-shirt. Free Sparky. I don't get fresh. I stay fresh. That's right. I love, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I was texting Leanne before, and I was like, "What's some stuff? What's some good stuff I can get Sparks mm-hmm. on?" And she's like, "Ask him why he gets his hair cut every week." I was like, every week? I mean, I got my hair cut like two days ago. It's the shortest it's ever been in my life. I get it cut every like two months. So I couldn't imagine every week. Yeah, it's just. I get fresh. I don't stay fresh, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Corey also wanted me to ask you what it's like to be, you know, like um, some people in their mid-20s living at their parents' house now. (laughs) It has to be a record, right? I have to be the first cup crew chief that, that actually lives at home. So, uh, <laughs> as you know, the housing market was extremely crazy or still is crazy. Uh, remodeled my house last year, never had any intention of selling it, was posting some pictures of the work I'd done and um, just got some stupid offers. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? I'm never here. And uh, 
I have a great family. Uh, I actually enjoy spending a lot of time with them. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I, I honestly, I keep a backpack. I don't know where I'm going to stay every night. Uh, having to commute an hour to Concord, uh, from Winston Salem, uh, some night I stay at my parents, some night I stay at my sister's house. One of the guys that used to work for me now works at Hendrick. He's got an apartment close. I'll, I'll bum his couch every now and again. I'll stay in hotels and then obviously traveling on the weekend. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, You're a couch surfer. The, the, the fridge has food in it or the pantry has food in it all the time. The laundry gets done. There's no complaints. It's really, uh, <laughs> there's, and there's no bills. They love me. It's great. Oh my God. All right. So we've learned that you don't get fresh, you stay fresh. And in order to do so, you're staying at your parents, which, Hey, I'm all for it. Save that money. <laughs> yeah. The, the no mortgage is, is, is nice for sure. So, uh, uh, Corey stacking pennies, I'm stacking paper, you know, uh, <laughs> It's, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm looking for land. I think oh, I want to live, uh, somewhere in the West Salem area, but kind of in the middle of nowhere, I guess you could say I want to be in the woods yeah. and, uh, the barn dominium thing just kind of makes sense for me. Yeah. Stacking pennies and stacking paper. That's, I, I don't think we can get any better than that. I think we have to wrap it up now. <laughs> that was so good, man. Uh, all right, Ryan, this has been great to chat with you, man. I really so appreciate you. Uh, thank you so much for hopping on in a busy, busy time of the season that it is right now for you, man. So thanks for hopping on. I appreciate you, man. And I know it was your off day. So thanks for spending it with me. Honor. Yeah. Sorry. I, you cut out the last little bit of audio, but uh, yeah, super uh, glad to be here. It was a lot of fun and uh, we'll do it again sometime. Uh, no worries. I was just saying that you probably are the only cup crew chief to live at your parents' house. Ever. <laughs> hey, you got to be, be known for something, I guess. So uh, anyways, that. It is what it is, and uh, I'm 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 living it up right now. So hey, Joey Logano used to live at his parents' house when he was a Cup driver. So you know, there's some precedent in some way. Hey, Logano is the man. So uh, he's if we want to be compared to something like that, I'm good with it. So <laughs> stacking pennies and stacking paper and staying fresh. That's what we do. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, man. Have a good day. Thank you. And we're back. Woo, man, what a guy. What a chat. What a conversation. I don't get fresh. I stay fresh. Corey's stacking pennies. I'm stacking paper. Those are just two mic drops. I actually saw Ryan this week at Dover because this conversation was recorded prior to that. Uh, he stopped me on pit road and we we're just chatting a little bit. I was asking him how things are going. If he got his hair cut this week, he said he did. Of course, his boy Javier hooked it up. I was asking him how or where he was staying this past week because he mentioned he stays at his sister's place, at hotels, at his parents, buddies' couches, and I think he may have just even lost track and he had to stay an extra night at Dover. So I hope he had all that laundry done that his parents did for him because I did not pack enough polos, so I had to wear a little t-shirt under my sweater on Monday at Dover. But man, Ryan, great to chat with you, my man. Great to learn a little bit more about your story. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I know everybody listening did as well. So keep up the great work, my man. We'll be seeing you in victory lane, hopefully sooner rather than later, get Inspire running up front on a weekly basis. Before we run out of here for this week, let's chit chat a little bit about Dover Motor Speedway. My home track, the first time going there under new management, new ownership as SMI purchased the racetrack from Dover it was a pretty good show. I'm not going to go out and say that it's the best Dover race I've ever seen. It's definitely not the best race in my entire life that I've seen. But given the past races that we have seen at Dover, the past product, if you will, 
This was a market improvement, and I feel pretty confident and firm in saying that. Even though it got pushed to Monday, we had the first 78 laps run on Sunday. Mother Nature said, hey, hi, how you doing? Get out of my way, and she wreaked havoc on us. The track having no lights, not adequate time to dry the track and get the full distance or get to halfway in before darkness would set in, forced them to postpone it to Monday. They ran the remaining race on that day. It was great weather. A lot of fans showed up on Sunday, and that was so, so refreshing, so good to see. It continues the upward trajectory that we're seeing across the board when it comes to NASCAR races this year. More fans in the stands, more people watching, more people engaging, more people interacting on social media, digitally. It's good. These are good, positive trends that we're seeing. I just hate, and I'm biased here, that my home track that has been admittedly struggling a little bit had a glimmer of hope in terms of the attendance getting up there a little bit. There was a buzz. There was a feel on race day morning that I don't remember feeling at Dover for a handful of years. I don't know if it was that SMI kind of injected some new life into the place, but the midway was rocking. There was concerts going on, swarms of people. It was awesome. It felt like it really did feel like one of those race days in the mid to late 2000s. And I can barely remember those because I was just a wee little lad. But my dad, Papa Siegel, who did the Wayback segment, does it him every week. He's the one that was with me at all those races at Dover from 2002 every year, twice a year, up until 2014. And we still try to go back every time we can. So it had a feel to it, man. It really did. And I just hate that not everybody was able to come back on Monday because of work, school, their prior commitments and everything like that. With that being said, though, the the crowd that did show back up on Monday was pretty solid, all things considered, because you can't expect everybody to come back. You can't even expect 50% of the people that showed out on Sunday to show back up on Monday, but I think we got pretty darn close to it, and it was really good to see that. And the racing itself, again, was really, really solid, a marked improvement from what we've seen at the Monster Mile in years past. You can thank the next-gen car for that. You can thank Goodyear for bringing a really solid tire for that. The tire's wider. The tire wore out a little bit more. Tire management came into play. When's the last time you saw Kyle freaking Larson, the man who can drive anything, win in anything, any car, any surface, anytime, anywhere, when's the last time you saw him spin out on his own? I don't remember that. And that happened coming off of turn four early in the race on Monday, so... That was really refreshing to see. It kind of gave me a throwback type feel and even reminded me of Auto Club earlier this year in practice and qualifying when drivers were just looping it and losing it all by themselves. So that was great to see. The tire fall off was really, really encouraging. A lot of side-by-side action throughout the pack and for the lead. Ross Chastain and Chase Elliott were battling tooth and nail side-by-side for multiple laps. We had some comers. We had some goers. Again, One of the best races, especially recently at the Monster Mile, that I can remember. And that, my friends, is reason for celebration. As we keep chugging along in the season, 11 races down. And the next of those comes at the Lady in Black, the track too tough to tame, Darlington Raceway for Throwback Weekend. Always a cool race. Always a cool weekend. Cool event at a great historic venue. Great racetrack. The only thing and the only bone that I have to pick about this entire ordeal is that unfortunately, and it's not NASCAR's fault, it's not Formula One's fault, they're going head-to-head. Formula One is in Miami this weekend, 
the inaugural Formula One Miami Grand Prix. Their race is starting at 3.30. NASCAR is starting at 3.30. Oh, man. Like, ah, I know why. It's it's because TV, you know. I mean, TV sets these start times from the NASCAR perspective, and they pay a lot of money, and they should get that authority to be able to have some influence in terms of what time the race starts and everything like that. But man, it's just tough because as a race fan, you want to be able to watch both. And and I, a lot of race fans did this past weekend when IndyCar was at Barber and the race ended right before the cup race started. They flipped over the channel and they were able to watch both races, albeit the cup race got postponed to the next day. But that's what makes Memorial Day weekend and that Sunday the best because you wake up, you got breakfast in Monaco, you have a snack. You then have the Indianapolis 500 in the afternoon. You have a little lunch. You take a break, take a walk with the family, do whatever you got to do. And then you sit down, you relax for 600 miles at Charlotte Motor Speedway with the Coke 600. That's tradition. I get that. The Formula One race in Miami is not tradition. The throwback weekend, it's more tradition than Miami in Formula One, but it's not ingrained in race fans' minds of yesteryear. These two are recent developments, and I understand that. And it just so happens that, unfortunately, they're going head-to-head. Now, look, could NASCAR have said, you know what, we're going to run at 5.30, or we're going to run on Saturday night? Sure, they, they could have said that, but I don't think that they want to do that from a television ratings perspective. And also, if you do that, in my opinion, you're kind of accepting defeat in a way because you know they may not say that they're competing against F1 for television ratings and for interest, but we all know they are. Formula One's booming in the U.S. right now. That's why they added this race in Miami. That's why they added Las Vegas next year. Drive to Survive is awesome. I'm a big F1 fan. I have been, and this has gotten me more into it. But I'd be lying if I told you I wasn't just a little miffed by the fact that they're both at the same time. And I'm going to be working the NASCAR race, but I will definitely have an eye, maybe even an eye and a half on the Formula One race going on down there in Miami because I am interested in it. I want to see how it plays out. And from another perspective, too, if, if you're in the Miami area, you probably ain't going to the race because it is the elitist of elites. <laughs> Tickets are two grand for standing room only, and they purposefully capped the event because they didn't want to overdo it, which I understand kind of at the inaugural perspective. But also, if you want to kind of open it up to the masses in the U.S., allow some more people to come. You know what I mean? But I think that they'll kind of iron those kinks out next year, hopefully, if it's able to return and it's successful. So that's my long diatribe in saying I like to watch all the racing that I can and focus my attention on each specific series, each specific race at one time. Unfortunately, situations like this come up and they arise where you can't do that. And this just happens to be one of those weekends. But my attention will be more so on the NASCAR race and the Goodyear 400. I love Throwback Weekend. It's great. The paint schemes are incredible, phenomenal. Just a couple to run through real quick in terms of the paint schemes that really stand out to me that I like. I love Trackhouse and what they're doing. I love the one car with the Coca-Cola Polar Bear. Same thing with Suarez's 99 with the Coca-Cola Throwback there. Kyle Sykes has designed those cars all season long and last year. They are absolute heaters, and the font was changed. That is just chef's kiss, the finishing touch on a masterpiece. Down in the Xfinity Series, I love Josh Berry's number eight orange Looney Tunes car. I remember that car back in my childhood, 
and it's not often that you see a big-time orange car. I know that you have Denny Hamlin and FedEx, and there's some other orange cars out there, but this one is, like, legit orange, and it's just kind of weird, and I don't really think you get that a lot. So I liked seeing that car. I think the Looney Tunes aspect is really, really cool. And the Truck Series has a lot of throwbacks as well. I don't know if I have one specific favorite, but I do remember last year, Chris Wright, former guest on the podcast, if you go back in the archives and check it out, he had a throwback to Kevin Harvick's GM Goodwrench car in the 02 Young's Motorsports truck last year. That one still, still remains one of, if not my all-time favorite Darlington throwbacks. I really, really like that one. So you can catch the Goodyear 400 on Fox Sports 1 Sunday around 3.30 Eastern and F1 lights out from Miami, baby, 3.30 on ABC. And that'll wrap things up for this episode of Victory Lane. Episode 146 is in the books. Thank you guys for listening so, so much. I always appreciate you guys. This episode may be out a little bit later than you're used to this week. That's what happens when you get a rain out and your whole week gets pushed back by a day and your whole week is absolutely a wreck. (laughs) But hey, I'm not alone. I know a lot of people are grinding out there and they have their weeks messed up too. So it's part of it, man. Pleasure to be on this ride with you guys. And I thank you for staying on the roller coaster with me. If you like the ride, please do me a favor and leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends. Tell your family. The reason I say to subscribe is not for my own ego, although it does make me feel nice, because that gets this show in front of more people. And that way we're able to grow a little bit and you can grow with me. So do that on iTunes, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, whatever your favorite podcast player of choice is, we should be available there for your consumption. If we're not, drop me a line. I'll try to rectify that issue for you. ASAP Rocky, ASAP Bird. All right, guys, enjoy Darlington this weekend. Enjoy Miami if you're in, if you're into F1. And a little programming note outside of this podcast, if you are a SiriusXM subscriber, you guys know that I've been working for them for over a year on the NASCAR channel, Channel 90. Great programming, 24-7, 365. Yours truly will be voicing Loose Ends, the best of SiriusXM NASCAR radio this weekend. First airing is Friday night, and then it re-airs throughout the weekend at kind of some weird hours in the night on Saturday and Sunday, but I'm really excited about that. My first chance to voice a show on SiriusXM, so I appreciate everybody there giving me the opportunity to do so, and if you guys would like, tune in, and you'll be able to hear a familiar voice. It may not be Victory Lane, but the dulcet tones will remain the same. I will catch you guys on the flip side next week when we will recap Darlington preview Kansas and talk with another guest from the world of NASCAR. Appreciate y'all more than you know. We'll catch you on the flip side, party people. Be good.